is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Tom Lutkin and I'm a project manager here at the National Bureau of Asian Research. In today's podcast, we'll be exploring disaster management in South Asia, looking at key takeaways and paths forward for the region. I'm very pleased to be joined by our guests this morning, Dr. Pushp Bajaj of the National Maritime Foundation and Mr. Mohammed Mahmoudul Hassan of the Christian Commission for Development in Bangladesh, who each brings many years of experience to today's conversation. Dr. Bajaj is a research fellow and the head of the Blue Economy and Climate Change Cluster at the National Maritime Foundation in New Delhi, India. Mr. Hassan has worked for CCDB since 2019 and is the coordinator for capacity building, research, and advocacy on their climate change program. Pushp and Hassan, thank you both so much for joining us today. So for this first question, I wanted to start us off on the topic that is very relevant in the news today, which is climate change. Uh, as we are recording today's podcast, uh, the 26th Conference of the Parties is continuing in Glasgow. And as national leaders and international organizations uh, meet to discuss this topic, I wanted to start our topic of discussion with disaster management in the same place. Um, as we have learned over the past year, disaster management usually involves preparation or planning of some kind before a disaster. But with a changing climate comes a shifting baseline for how many of these disasters, particularly in South Asia, how often these are occurring. So I might start with uh, Pushp here. Uh, how can we better account for these changes when planning for disasters over the coming decades as the world becomes a warmer place? Right, um, and that's a very important question, Dom. And I think uh, the issue here, first of all, is that we have to understand how exactly uh, the disasters are evolving, uh, the natural disasters. And when I talk about natural disasters, and when you talk about climate change, it's mostly the hydrometeorological disasters. So you're not talking about earthquakes, fires, and I mean, man-made fires, not uh, natural fire. You are talking about natural fires, not man-made fires. So the hydrometeorological disasters, <clears throat> we have to talk about how they are actually evolving uh, because of climate change. And so what I mean by that is that the, the local level information that we need in order to uh, make disaster management plans that take into account climate change for that local level plan, you first need to know how these disasters will evolve uh, at the district level, at the local level. And so that is something that is, uh, I feel, is currently missing in uh, South Asian countries. And I'm certainly aware of the uh, situation in India that only recently have we had, uh, you know, government level reports that are looking into the district level vulnerability of um, uh, for climate change, the district level vulnerability for climate change. And so only when we have that information of, let's say, how what will be the frequency of, uh, let's say, tropical cyclones uh, by the year 2030, 2050, and 2100. Uh, and similarly, what will be the uh, level of sea level rise by those uh, time periods. Once we have that information, only then can we uh, think of ways to incorporate that into the disaster management uh, plan. Uh, but having said that, assuming that we do have that information, what climate change demands us to do is to have uh, a dynamic approach. Because uh, 
already what we knew about climate change uh, 10 years ago has changed drastically uh, now, and it's going to continue changing and evolving as we go into the future. So the more we learn, the more we'll have to adapt. So this, uh, the dynamic nature of it is very important, and that's something that is currently missing in disaster management plans, uh, in the sense that when a city comes up with a disaster management plan, usually you make it, and then you think that you're good for the next 20, 30 years. Same thing with the infrastructure. The infrastructure that we are building, uh, you build it and the lifetime of that infrastructure, when you're talking about energy infrastructure or the transport infrastructure and things like that, they have lifetimes of 20, 30 years. Uh, so, so that has to change now. And so this dynamic nature in which we leave room for the changes that will occur in the future and the things that we do not even know about um, you know, the, the things that will happen in the future that we don't yet know about. So let me just give you one small example. Uh, for If you're looking at something like a storm surge barrier uh, or something like a seawall to protect your coastal regions, now the height of that seawall or the height of that storm surge barrier, uh, if you uh, decide that height based on the projections that you have today, those projections will change as we go into the future. Uh, even now with the IPCC AR6 uh, report, the sixth assessment report, the first working group contribution to the sixth assessment report, the projections are quite different from what they were uh, in the uh, fifth assessment report. So that number, if you built the infrastructure based on the fifth assessment report, then that does not is that is not valid anymore. And that's what we that, that's what I mean about the dynamic nature. And just very quickly about the second aspect of it, which is, uh, the holistic nature of it. We, we have to have more holistic plans. And by that, I mean, it's not always about uh, a hard infrastructure solution. It's not always about building a seawall or a storm surge barrier. It's also about putting into place frameworks that allow uh, for conversations to happen, that allows for innovation to happen. And for that, you need to be, you need to make sure that your a population is aware of the challenges, your local communities are aware of the challenges, and for that, there needs to be some forum that brings together these people and have a constructive uh, dialogue. So I'll, I'll pause at that. Thank you. I do agree with Dr. Pushpo that uh, the frequency of the cyclonic events as well as the uh, sea level rise also are happening. And we believe the sign. That is a fact. And interestingly, uh, the coastal people who are living there, they are most vulnerable to this climate change. I can give one example. The coastal belt of Bangladesh from month of October 2020 to month of April 2021, around seven to eight months, they didn't have any rainfall. However, from the month of May 2021 to till October 2021, this six months, it's a raining, it's a huge raining there and water logging happens there. So no raining as well as the huge rainy, excessive rainies. So both all together, actually people in their mind, this is the climate change. And definitely we believe that in the Bay of Bengal, the birthplace of several cyclones there, we can accept two, three or four. But if the number is five, six or seven cyclones in a year, how many times people will leave their house at the signal number 10? We always tell in such a way. So in every point of this corner, we are thinking about that climate change are affecting this people's life 
especially for access to this clean drinking water, access to their energy, as well as access to their food security, especially in terms of agriculture, because people have been adapted for their agriculture, sometimes we call smart agriculture practice, but if the embankment damaged after any type of cyclone, because the, in the coastal belt of Bangladesh, the embankment has been affected by several times cyclone Cedar in 2007, cyclone Isla in 2009. Even if I can uh, remember cyclone Mohashian, cyclone Bulbul in 2019, as well as cyclone Amphan in 2020, Bangladesh India belts were affected. So all these are happening due to this climate change and people are really, they have crossing the threshold. However, the people, the living in the South Asia, end of the day, they smile to your face. But definitely, climate change just make their life miserable. It's a it's a sobering truth, I think, and uh, one where I think it's it's encouraging, and we all have to try and be positive as we can. But it is it can be very difficult to, to deal with these impacts, especially in um, South Asia. Um, I wanted to turn a little bit to some of those South Asia particular considerations. Um, earlier this year, one of our project experts described uh, international aid efforts as being supply driven, not demand driven, uh, where countries were providing aid and they were providing what they perceived as the needs of the communities affected, rather than responding to the actual needs of those communities. Are there examples of international aid not aligning with the affected regions, cultures or, or religious norms? And if so, how can we aim to mitigate such gaps that come about with international efforts in disaster response and perhaps the other phases of disaster management? I would be in the middle of the answers of this question, because look at here, if I give the example of Bangladesh, one of the most uh, susceptible country to this uh, climate vulnerability, Bangladesh uh, started his journey actually from his, uh, her birth. In 1970, Bangladesh hit by the cyclone Bhola. Bhola is the district name and cyclone Bhola hit this area. And no doubts around 1 million people were killed there. Even, even in 1990, uh, cyclone Gorky, one, uh, 130,000 people, 1 1.3 uh, lakh people, that 0.13 people, a million people killed that places. But many times this country get aid as a response from many donor countries, even the foreign donors, no doubt. However, in case of Bangladesh, Bangladesh has a very structural framework for disaster management because Bangladesh has a paradigm shift over the decades from the reactive, relief-based approaches to the proactive integrated management of the disaster. If you think about the, the top one, if the top one is the National Disaster Management Council headed by the prime minister, the same link has been vertically down to the World Disaster Management Committee. It is something like the, the lowest status of the one. So when any type of aid comes actually, or the demand is expected, that actually comes from the villages. And then the demands goes to the upper link and definitely the government's coordinating all the reliefs comes to their country. That is the examples from this Bangladesh. However, I would not say that uh, the donor, they would not have a different strategies. Each 
of every donor, every uh, foreign uh, aid provider, they have their own strategy, own fact. But when it comes to a country, it should be a context of that particular country in any regardless of this religions, any regardless of the cultures, but definitely, but one point I would mention that in the South Asia, sometimes uh, it is something in complain that the corruption of the distribution of the relief task might be, we get many relief, but in case of the distributions to the local level, sometimes corruptions happens there. But yes, you have to, we have to believe that in every society, regardless any country, we have a, some cult, culprit who, trying to make conflict in the name of religion, in the name of race, even during this disaster period, especially post-disaster response period. But I always try to say that every time any type of aid, any type of cooperation should be country basis, context of the particular country, and definitely in a view of holistic. Uh, yeah, I actually, I don't think that I, um, will be able to speak much about the cultural and the religious aspects of it, just because I don't think, uh, you know, I have the necessary information. However, I would like to mention a few things in terms of financial aid and international aid in general post-disaster. Um, one thing that we have to kind of, you know, relook is when we say that there is a disaster and then th when the uh, governments, the local governments or some organization puts a number on the damage that was caused by that disaster. Uh, what goes behind calculating that number is something that we have to understand. And generally it's more like a very broad survey, uh, which is done to identify, okay, these many buildings were damaged, uh, these many houses were lost, and, and then there are different types of buildings. There are residential buildings, there are uh, critical infrastructure like hospitals, schools, and, and such. And then there is an approximate number that is being uh, assigned to that damage that was caused. Now, is that enough? Is that something that gives us an accurate picture of what the loss was? Uh, I would argue not, because there are things that you lose, for example, the natural capital, for example, the, the forests that get damaged or the wildlife that is lost. Um, you know, recently with the Australian fires uh, that took place uh, uh, earlier uh, last year, large numbers of uh, wildlife species and uh, absolute numbers, over 1 million or something uh, species, uh, sorry, uh, over 1 million number of animals were, you know, killed in that, in those fires. So how do you put a number on that? And this is something that we are trying to wrestle with uh, at the National Maritime Foundation. How do you put a number on the natural capital? Because that becomes relevant uh, in terms of disaster, um, you know, disaster relief and disaster aid, but also in terms of uh, thinking about the the uh, the value that we are adding, the value that we are assigning to the natural capital, and that's something that I think that we have to look into uh, and really think about when when the government asks for the aid, you know, and the number that they ask for, you most definitely are not going to get the entire number that you asked for, and within that, the number itself. Uh, is something that we are not really sure how to calculate. It's mostly a broad survey and a broad uh, estimation of that number. Uh, the second thing that I would uh, say here is that the uh, it's not just about the infrastructure loss. It's also about the loss of livelihoods. And there, putting a number on that again is a very uh, you know is is a is a complicated issue. Uh, when someone loses their 
their business, uh, the 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 their jobs uh, because of a disaster, that uh, goes into the um, area of you know long-term recovery, and in that is there aid? Is there aid which is uh, local level? Is there international aid that's going to help the people come out of that disaster, not just in terms of putting a roof over their heads, but also uh, giving them the job that they lost because of the disaster. So I think these two things uh, are still not. Uh, yes, so these two things uh, that I mentioned, the uh, the estimation of the amount of loss and also the loss of livelihoods and how can that be incorporated into the uh, figure, the financial figure that's given after the disaster is something that is not uh, given enough attention. And I think that we should be looking into these things. Yes, uh, definitely, Dr. Pushpo has rightly mentioned about the calculation and uh, the perspective behind uh, of this type of figure, because end of the day, it triggers the exact uh, amount or as exact volume of the aid uh, a country can ask to others' country. For example, in case of Bangladesh, um, I don't know, might be it would be similar to others' country. As part of this disaster management, we have a standing uh, order on the disasters, and as per there, there is a form called the D form, D form, uh, that form actually for the calculation of uh, loss and damage. So within, after a disaster, uh, the sub-district level, uh, sub-district level disaster management committee, uh, they will collect the information from the world, uh, what is the collecti collective of the villages. Uh, they will get the information of the either fully or partially damage of the houses, roads, embankments, uh, how many people uh, have died there. So all the information has to be gathered together and that information has to send to the sub-district level um, disaster management committee. They will send to district level and it will go to the final one, the Ministry of uh, Disaster Management and Relief. So in such a way, all the information uh, comes. But fact is that, again, the two to the point of the, uh, Dr. Pushpo has rightly mentioned that how much it's it's accurate. That is very important. When we are getting the information of the post-disaster information, that should be very accurate, comprehensive, and no doubt it's time being, but due to the urgency of the disaster response and recovery perspective, that document, they actually send a very quick, as per the, uh, what is called the, as per the system of the uh, disaster management procedure. So information should be very accurate because the people who are getting this information, they're experienced actually. When a people uh, face 10 cyclones, 15 floods, they easily sometimes understand the, how uh, much uh, loss and damage occurred there. So I do agree uh, very poorly to uh, Dr. Pushpo that that type of actions uh, before to giving a summation that is very important. Absolutely, and I know that in my limited study of this sort of thing, the environmental economics of the value of ecosystems and the value of ecosystem services is, is a very interesting and not very mature study um, in in the field, and so it's it's really interesting to see how that interplays with issues like disaster management and response. So I wanted to move uh, to our third question, which is the question that has been on everyone's mind in one form or another for the past almost two years, uh, and it has to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, as 
everyone knows we are current and I hope again uh, I will repeat myself from my last uh, podcast and say that I hope the day is not far off when this question is something that people can think about as something that happened in the past rather than something that is still going on. But as we record this podcast episode, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is ongoing. Um, how has COVID-19 changed traditional forms of disaster management and preparedness and response? And in your opinion, how will it alter the disaster management landscape going forward? Yes, I think it has uh, one way that it has and it should change our understanding and uh, provide us with, uh, you know, some new information that we can utilize in our disaster management uh, strategies is, is that it is providing us an example of an extremely rare and extremely high impact event. If you don't think of it as a pandemic, if you just think of it as an event, uh, which you know led to socioeconomic disruptions and loss of life and, and things like that, if you just look at it as an event, and then you try to study uh, the, uh, the impact, the response uh, that was uh, you know, taken by countries and, and so on, then it provides a case study of an extremely rare yet high impact event. And this becomes relevant, uh, especially when we are talking about climate change, because we know that uh, as climate change is changing the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events, we will see high impact rare events. The, the events that used to be one in 1000 year events will likely become one in 100 or one in a uh, 10 year event. <clears throat> and when I say one in 1000, of course, I don't mean that the event will happen once and then 1000 year later, it will happen again but it's it's a measure of probability in the sense that in any given year the probability of that event occurring is one in 1000 uh, so the probability will increase and it's it's still possible that it could happen in consecutive years uh, but it's just that it's a rare event so if we look at it that way i think we should look at it as a case study and try to understand how systems respond uh, to such rare events and how did the countries respond? How long did it take for them to come back to normal uh, when we were coming out of the lockdown uh, phases? And, and how long did it take for the economy to recover and, and things like that? So in that sense, we really have to look into it uh, closely, uh, not necessarily as a pandemic. Of course, that's a different different type of study, but as, an, as just an event, uh, extremely rare and high impact event. Yes, Tom. Uh, the uh, Dr. Pushpo has uh, elaborately explained about this information, especially uh, what might happen and what's the occurrence of this type of uh, uh, drastic event uh, in our uh, in the earth. Look at here, COVID-19, no doubt, COVID-19 has placed a, a new load on the world's shoulder, actually. Uh, Bangladesh and India, both countries, already experienced the Cyclone Amphan in 2020. Uh, Cyclone Iyash in 2021, same month, month of May, as well as several flares this year and the early year. So we have experienced how the COVID-19 effect there, because when the Cyclone Amphan hit in the month of May in 2020, lockdown due to the COVID was running in Bangladesh. So one side there is a lockdown, one side there is cyclone Amphan is coming. So how we will keep 
the safe distance in the shelter because that is the first time we are new experience. Uh, I was uh, asked from my field supervisor, field staff that what actually we want to do and what's the procedure, how to do that, how I want to make ensure the enough mask to the people and how I want to ensure the cleaning the hands. So really it's an, uh, one way it's a very devastating because you are cyclone or any types of events in already a massacre because people volunteers are going to the house to house knocking their doors bringing them to the shelters same times how i can ensure thousands of people in a shelter of 500 people so we have been experienced from those sites we have tried our best even we know that many people have used the marks some people has take their clothes uh, some cotton clothes inside the mouth. So they have uh, drived by themselves and they have washed, they have tried to wash because entrance of the shelter, there was a, a soap and water, something like that. So in such a way from the first hit, then we have seen that many NGOs, many volunteers, they have uh, raised their awareness among the people that if the, because already uh, Dr. Pushpo mentioned that there are many chances to come several cyclones in futures, flood in future, and people have, have to go to the shelters. So if they will go to the shelters, there should be, there should be cleaning facilities of the cleaning hands, enough marks, as well as some spaces for keeping social distance. And one most important thing, Tom, and all of my friends here, that now vaccination for COVID is going on. If any floods occurring, so many people will be displaced from their houses because we are getting two doses. So some people has got one dose, some people they didn't get yet. So how if any cyclones happen in the month of coming months or any flood occurs in Bangladesh, how many people will be covered for the second dose or the new dose? So this is several types of new features. And we are trying to raise this voice in such a way that the existing national plan of disaster management, uh, that can be included this type of new measures and new features and should be di disseminated to the field level worker. Uh, yes, I think Hassan brings out a great point and that is of, you know, another way to look at this case study of the COVID-19 pandemic is these simultaneous disasters that took place. Like Hassan mentioned that Cyclone Amphan last year uh, took place during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think uh, at that time in India, the uh, you know it was on the peak and the cases were on the rise and at the same time the cyclone hit. So this, this simultaneous disasters uh, or cascading disasters, uh, this is again another way to look at this uh, as a case study and because climate change is going to do that, it's going to uh, increase the probability of simultaneous disasters uh, happening um, and also from an economic point of view, that if you're already struggling, if your country's economy is already uh, struggling, in this case it was due to the pandemic, but it could be for any number of reasons. If it is already struggling and then you have an uh, event like a powerful cyclone, how does that further uh, impact your economy. So this is again this 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 uh, aspect of simultaneous cascading disasters is also something uh, that we have to look at uh, when we study the COVID-19 pandemic and how other disasters took place during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. I know that we have uh, mentioned it before, and we actually talked about it in our last podcast with the with the tsunami and nuclear 
um, disaster in Japan in 2011 and how um, it it was almost impossible to prepare for because it was two completely separate sort of disaster management plans that had to take place at the same time. And I think that that's very large in the context of a pandemic and a cyclone or a pandemic and an earthquake. So, um, And this, you know, this uh, happens to connect to your first question, which was about how do you take into account climate change in disaster management planning? Uh, you just said that it was almost impossible to prepare for such an event, but we now know that it's, it's you know, it's not about if, it's about when uh, these things happen together. And so now that we are supposedly wiser from our experiences of what happened in Japan and also what happened in Bangladesh during the COVID-19 pandemic, we need to incorporate these cascading risks uh, into our disaster management uh, strategies. In South Asia, as we've discussed, many of the most pressing disasters uh, are exacerbated by a warming climate. Um, this podcast should be published uh, at the conclusion of the 36th or 26th Conference of the Parties. Um, how, in your opinion, can collaboration between countries or within countries or between cities and states in countries, how can collaboration on disaster management help to avert disasters while also helping address some of these overarching problems like climate change or global pandemic outbreaks? Uh, we are looking at uh, our eyes to the COP26 and was the best deal come here definitely we we always we have to be optimistic and we have uh, we wish for the best deal but one thing we have to think in such a way let's say uh, bangladesh has a target when they will be net zero india has a target when they will be net zero same way us same way russia any countries every country who signed the paris agreement each of them have their own perspective own development goal own issues inside their country but look at here when a people living in the coastal belt of Bangladesh, district of Shatkhira, when he lost his house in Cyclone Amphan, his hardcore feeling is the same hardcore feeling a house destroyed by the cyclone in Orisha. So people living in Bangladesh, affected by the cyclones, storm surge, people living in India, affected by the cyclone, storm surge, is the same, whatever, our development goal, our perspective, our net zero to uh, to place even place to the uh, Paris Agreement, everything could be different, but the hardcore feeling, the well-being is the same. From that perspective, we have to be in the same platform because Paris Agreement has given the chance to countries to country, but what about the others? Because already Push, Dr. Pushpo mentioned about the science behind the global warming and the science about the disaster management. We have a Paris Agreement that has to be achieved. We have a sustainable development goal that has to be achieved. We have a Sendai framework for disaster uh, reduction, how much we are going to achieve all together. So if we want to achieve all three together, how much the people living in the South Asia, people living in the US, people living in India and Bangladesh, how much we are capable? Let's say developing de people living in developed country, they are capable, they have a lots of facilities, training facilities, lots of programs, even financial assistance, they have many things. But what about the people living 
in the developing countries, who even who are going to be immersed uh, to be developed? What about the people who have a, a even who have a uh, per capita income around 3,000 US dollar, even below 3,000 US dollar, who are living in the South Asia? How we can cope to disaster when five to seven cyclones will hit, strike the Bay of Bengal people? So in such a way, people living in Delhi, living in Dhaka, people living in Urisha Coast Bell, living in Bangladesh Coast Bell, all has to come to a platform so that people living in Bangladesh, they can understand what is intervention is practiced in India and how I can transfer my technology to one of the village. Let's say I can transfer a technology to uh, district of Uttarakhand, or I can bring in some bamboo technologies from India to Bangladesh in such a way, or Sri Lanka can replicate our models, or Nepal can help us to develop the small hydropower. So in such a way, we can develop ourselves to combat this climate change as well as disaster. Again, I can mention whatever in political view, our country's goal might be different. We have a different notion, but people living in this world, 7 billion people, they have a same feeling. Uh, yes, I think, uh, you know, Hassan is correct that there has to be this uh, sharing of knowledge and sharing of technologies and sharing of best practices uh, using international uh, forums. And there are, uh, you know, international forums that are, I mean, pretty much every um, international cooperation uh, forum has disaster management as one of its action points. Um, I was just trying to, yeah, so we have the uh, the BIMSTEC, we have the ASEAN uh, collective, we have uh, the, for example, the Indian Oceans, uh, in Indo-Pacific Oceans Initiative. All of them have a disaster management uh, component uh, to them. However, I think the, the, the lack of urgency and the lack of seriousness when it comes to disaster management, which is being uh, exacerbated by climate change, that sense of urgency does not really exist. And also how this, this conversation needs to happen, not just when people are talking about disaster management, but it also has to happen when you're talking about trade, when you're talking about, uh, when you're talking about other forms of uh, cooperation, uh, for example, connectivity. And because all of those things will be affected by climate change and by natural disasters. So it has to take place in all of those forums so that you get a more, uh, you know, a more uh, exhaustive, uh, approach towards international cooperation. Okay, so uh, speaking of the COP26 and the UNFCCC negotiations and the Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement recognizes the um, the idea of common but differentiated responsibilities. And in fact, it was even before the um, the before the Paris Agreement, way back in Rio at the 1992 summit, that this idea of common but differentiated responsibilities came about. Uh, and we understand this, that developed countries have contributed more to creating the problem of uh, climate change. That is because that that's because we can see it in the cumulative carbon emissions. Uh, if you if you look at the historical period and even now, if you look at the per capita emissions, uh, then we can clearly see that developing uh, parts of the world, especially the, the least developed countries, the small island developing states, they're all much lower in per capita emissions. So the Paris Agreement recognizes that. And it has put into place uh, mechanisms to, to mobilize that factor. 
for example, the um, you know even before the Paris Agreement, there was the idea of uh, creating a financial aid mechanism for developing countries, where uh, the developed countries were had committed to generate a funding of over um, 100 billion US dollars per year. And this was set in uh, 2009. And it has not been met for even a single year uh, till now. Uh, it's it's always short. I think the most that it has been, I think it was last year that it was around 70 something, 70 or 80 billion dollars uh, a year. So this and in, in fact, now at the latest COP26, when uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi gave his uh, remarks, uh, he talked about increasing the ceiling, this, this financial aid of $100 billion a year to over $1 trillion a year, because that's the kind of challenge that we are facing in the developing countries. And it can only be done through financial aid. It can only be done through technological uh, aid. It can only be done through uh, you know science and technology, which is no doubt more advanced in the developed parts of the world. So when we are talking about cooperation, the mechanisms exist, but they are just not being mobilized. They're just not, the action is not happening uh, along those uh, frameworks to actually utilize them. And so I think these mechanisms of the financial aid, also the carbon credits mechanism that is in the article six of uh, Paris Agreement, which talks about how uh, you know countries or even companies can utilize carbon credits and support uh, sustainable development and adaptation mechanisms, uh, adaptation strategies in developing countries and use that as a carbon credit, which, which works for everyone. Uh, so I think the mechanisms exist, but we have to do more to actually uh, you know, make use of those mechanisms. That's great. And Hassan, I might turn to you for your last thoughts there. Uh, yes, Tom, in addition to Dr. Pushpo's comment, I want to add just two points here. Uh, definitely, we have to work hard of, uh, to keep the temperature 1.5 degree, but science say different something that uh, it's already 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius. So how long we can go, that's a very important question. But what is that? What happened after the disaster? Loss and damage. That is the most ultimate product of the, any disaster that is the loss and damage. But how about we have gone to, for the loss and damage? How much uh, our leaders, uh, they are uh, enthusiastic to talk about this loss and damage. If you look at the figure, the in, uh, inland displacement as well as the migration, especially in the uh, South Asia belts, is a number of hues. When we are talking about the non-traditional security issues, migration, displacement, due to this disaster, that is one of the vital issues. But However, we get a pillar for the loss and damage, but we didn't get a very good framework for the loss and damage and how it would be addressed and what's the money we can come. We are all we are thinking, talking about this hundred billion US dollar. Definitely, we are also th thinking about this billion dollar. But what would be for the millions of the people? Because many disaster will come, no doubt. Climate change will be happening, and more loss and damage will be incurred, and it would be surplused to our thinking. So in such a way, definitely for this COP is a very important that how far we can go with this loss and damage especially, and more importantly, $100 billion, how it would be generated. What is the roadmap of this $100 billion? And if we think that from the 2020-21 to 2020-25, $500 billion US dollar should be stored, how it would be, because till now, 79 billion US dollar 
has been committed to place to the uh, fund is to 20 billion US dollar. However, it's in s several controversies that whether it's an uh, ODA or something like the climate finance something, but most importantly, what the money will get in this climate finance, 50% should be allocated for the mitigation as well as 50% should be allocated for this adaptation, especially for the people living in South Asia. Excellent. And I wanted to offer an opportunity to each of you to provide any closing remarks, overarching thoughts, um, disaster management, South Asia, cooperation, anything, anything along those lines. So uh, whichever of you would like to go first. Um. Um, I'll just, uh, I don't really have a long uh, closing remarks. I think we covered most of the points, but I'll just say, I'll just say this, that uh, we need to rethink the way that we look at a disaster. Uh, and like I mentioned, hydro, hydro meteorological disasters uh, such as floods and uh, cyclones and, and storm surge and, and things like that, how are they getting affected by climate change? Uh, and can we even call them disasters uh, now? Can we even call them rare events if they are happening so frequently? For example, now in India, Monsoonal flooding is an annual occurrence in southern India. Uh, monsoonal floods happen every year, and there's, you know, uh, in in Indian rupees, it's scores of damage, uh, which happens every year, and it's going to continue to happen uh, every year. So, can should we should we then change our uh, way of thinking about disasters, and how can we incorporate that? Coming back to your first question of how can we incorporate that in our disaster management plans uh, is something that we should look into. Yeah. Thank you. Similarly to Dr. Pushpo, I just anchor uh, uh, Dr. Pushpo's comments here. Uh, we have to understand the uncertainty of climate change. That is most important. We don't know that how far the next flood will cover the land. What would be the intensity of the next cyclone hit to the southern belt? Uh, whether there will be a uh, water uh, again saline water intuitions or wh what will happen? And, uh, even how long a embankment uh, can uh, tolerate the storm surge and how long and how many times in a year. Everything we have to consider in our planning and when we go for even my country and the country who are surrounding us, we are experiencing the landslide to southeastern corner. Uh, sometimes it's a uh, human induced hazard because a uh, landslide is happening because many several hills has been used for constructing buildings or houses even uh, in the south southeastern corner we have a uh, issues of this uh, rohingya immigrations there so it's an lots of items is happening here and we have to think and we have to redefine the disasters that dr pushpa already mentioned and that has to be considered in our national planning for the disasters as well as the development because our development in terms of disaster as well as the climate change cannot run in a separate way. Everything should be in a common platform that should be required. And most importantly, when I again, I recall and I encode that sound that our government and can sit with the next governments, no doubt, but the development workers, the academicians, the practitioners who are working in a different way, some, sometimes in a silo, 
we have to be sit together for the sake of the billions of people. We have to share our information. We have to share our knowledge. We have to share, share our thinkings. And definitely, we definitely give our thank you and appreciation to NBR who, have, who has given the platform in such a way. And definitely this type of platform in form of in-face platform or when the COVID will be over, we will sit together in face-to-face -face and talk about our world. However, if situation will be longer, we can go for much more virtual event, but we cannot stop that journey. That's very important for the sake of billions of people. Thank you, Hassan. I, I appreciate that. And thank you both for being here. It is the sincere hope of this podcast and this project in general to help bring those people together whose expert insights and whose ability to make and change policy can really help to gain ground on what can sometimes seem like an endless cycle of disaster and recovery and disaster again. So um, thank you for ending us on an optimistic note. Uh, thank you. Dr. Push Bajaj from the National Maritime Foundation, and thank you, Mr. Mahmoudul Hassan from the Christian Commission for Development in Bangladesh. I'm Tom Lutkin from NBR, signing off. Asia Insight podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.